be a lady tonight Luck be a lady tonight Luck if you've ever been a lady to begin with Luck be a lady well, Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of the Philip K. Dick Book Club, I will look at a, a work of Philip Dick's, usually a story or a few chapters of a novel. In this episode, will be this is part five of my series on Solar Lottery, and I'll be looking at chapters, um, I guess thirteen to the end. Um, we'll and we'll finish we'll finish up with uh, with the book. And leaving my episode six, I said I was going to do six episodes. On that. I'll leave episode six just for my overall thoughts on the book, uh, kind of my overall review and thematic analysis. Okay, so chapter 13, we're reaching the end of Solar Lottery. Um, as chapter 13 opens, we're joining the crew of Preston Knights seeking out the flame disc. They are confused by the appearance of Preston, who died 100, 100 years ago or something. And by the chaos their leader is facing at home due to the assassination attempt. So they're in the unenviable spot of both having to worry about Cartwright's fate as Quizmaster and what might happen to him. And uncertain about their quest, their mission out to find the 10th planet in the solar system. So that's what's going on there. Uh, then we jump back to the moon. And there we have Wakeman finding that Bentley is running the Pelagbot. And he tries to reach out to him mentally through his telepathy, and trying to tell him that he's been betrayed. Now, we got two sides of the feudal system at work in this novel. On the one hand, you have the necessity of obedience and service, but also obligation. There are some legal protections for people we learn. If you are classified, uh, you can't, for instance, be killed as part of your feudal oath, your feudal obligation, your oath of fealty, without, um, without permission. I guess you could allow them to kill you, but generally you're protected from death. Unclassified don't have their protection, as we'll find out tragically by the end of the novel. Wakeman tells him that he thinks that the Peleg bot has a bomb on it and that it will destroy Cartwright, but also the user at the time. Um, and this was actually set up earlier in the novel where we learn that Peleg, when he dies, the consciousness flips out so that person will not experience that death and not die. So I, I guess if you're in the Peleg and it dies... You're going to like lose your mind or something. You'll, you'll probably die. So that is um, the situation there. So they think it's a bomb. And it turns out this is true. There's a bomb on it. Not being told this was a betrayal of the fealty oaths, according to Wakeman. And Bentley eventually agrees with him. Wakeman tells him that not only does Varric know this and know there's a bomb there, but also Eleanor does. So Bentley is being doubly betrayed by the two people he's now closest to. And one of which is his love interest. Once he processes this betrayal, he quickly moves into action. As soon as Moore re-enters the Peleg bot, the Peleg body, Bentley, who's back at the base, right, just goes over to the body of Moore and kills him. Now, Moore is not dead at this point. Moore's consciousness lives on in the Peleg bot, but he can't go back. He can't go back to his dead body. So his future can only be in the Peleg bot which I think is a really interesting science fiction idea, and we've seen this done in other stories. Okay, I just had to click it up. Call Me Joe, Poole Anderson's Call Me Joe, uh, has this idea where a handicapped person, you know, it's, maybe like Avatar gets this idea from it, I bet, but uh, 
where a handicapped person is able to explore a planet with a toxic atmosphere by going into like these androids. Anyway, so that's kind of the place Moore is in. So Wakeman was killed also. Now that's kind of off screen or off screen is the wrong term, right? But not on the page um, because as you know, as soon as Moore entered, re-entered the body, he killed Wakeman. So this left the core in disarray and Peleg, the Peleg slash Moore launches off into space. Now Bentley with nowhere else to go appears on the moon and confronts uh, Cartwright. So there's a little escape scene but it's not much dick doesn't waste much time on that and he he has bentley basically warp over to the moon as quickly as possible um he confronts cartwright telling him that he did indeed work for varick um but that he you know he wasn't in a sense doing anything kind of treasonous right because there was this challenge convention the assassinations are all legit and legal um so there was no real suggestion of that he was being a criminal for what he did uh, maybe he maybe there's some breaking of the rules of the of the con of the assassination convention by using this creature like using Peleg rather than one assassin but that's kind of really be beside the point of this at this stage in the novel but he is trying to explain what happened and he mostly is interested in in really getting what he originally wanted in the novel which was a positional oath to the quizmaster. Um, they agree that Varric broke his oath to him by putting his life at risk, and they conclude that the Peleg Moor uh, hybrid will try to find Preston. As the chapter ends, Cartwright announces that he has survived his first assassination attempt. So this sort of puts an end to the assassination plotline for chapter 13. Um, it was a failure. Um, now, yeah, another convention could be held, another assassin sent out, but that would later and it, it doesn't even come to that chapter 14 in chapter 14 uh, so bentley tells cartwright about how the bomb on peleg on the peleg bot would have killed both of them this this is why he feels he was betrayed by his employer and feels and this is why he's no longer feels he's subject to this oath of fealty now much of the novels actually resolved here moore cannot last long in space without the help of, of preston so he's likely going to eventually die out in space Anywhere else, he'd be eventually captured. He can't leave without dying. Moore can't leave without dying. So the advantage that the Peleg bot had of flipping out of consciousnesses, um, flipping out minds, is gone. Uh, at least Moore's lost that capacity. So without Moore, there couldn't be a second robot that could be built because he was the only one who had the technology. So there could be regular assassins, but they wouldn't be nearly as good. Cartwright has already established some control over the telepathic network so he's as safe as he ever has been as quizmaster at this point so it kind of allows dick to settle down and to resolve some of the other plot points in the novel they have a, a kind of interesting discussion on legality and we get a hit on another theme of the novel and that is the suppression of the individual to the needs of the institution and the needs of individuals for community this tension kind of comes out on every page of the novel and maybe i'll say more that in the next episode where I talk about the themes. So Bentley says, I was tricked from the beginning. All of them were mixed up in it. Varric, Moore, Eleanor Stevens. From the moment I set foot in the lounge, Wakeman tried to warn me. He did what he could. I came to the directorate to get away from rottenness. I wound up doing its work. Varric gave me orders and I followed them. But what are you supposed to do in a society that's corrupt? Are you supposed to obey corrupt laws? Is it a crime to break a law that's a rotten law? 
or an oath that's rotten? It's a crime, Cartwright admitted slowly. They may be, it may be the right thing to do. In a society of criminals, Schaefer offered, the innocent man goes to jail. But who decides when a society is made up of criminals, Bentley demanded. How do you know when your society has gone wrong? How do you know when it's right to stop obeying the laws? You just know, Rita O'Neill said fiercely. So Rita, of course, is Cartwright's niece. So she's kind of been hanging out with Cartwright ever since he became a quiz master, one of the inner circle. Uh, she was the one who was, I think, sunbathing nude on the moon in the, in the last uh, episode. I think I didn't mention that. that he's, she's related to, to Cartwright there. Anyways, after this discussion, Cartwright offers to give Bentley a positional oath to the quiz master personally. Bentley does not have his P-card, though. Varric has that. Uh, that was taken as part of that fealty oath. But Cartwright gives him another one. And this is an important point. He gives him another P-card and says that he'll use this to swear an oath uh, as a classified. Bentley and Rita, who is Cartwright's niece, begin to bond a bit. And then there's this little suggestion here that they could have a love triangle develop here, but it doesn't really go too far. Now, after Bentley makes his oath, Varric arrives on the moon. So that's, that's chapter 14. Chapter 15. So what does Varric want? He's failed in the assassination attempt. He's not going to be Quizmaster, at least not now. So what does he want? It seems strangely to us as readers that his main concern is revenge against Bentley for betraying his oath of fealty. And he also accuses others in a rather delusional and over-the-top over way of, of betraying him. So he kind of puts on this Donald Trump hat there and becomes obsessed with, with the loyalty of the people under him. Varric confirms that Peleg is heading towards the Prestonite ship, and at the same time he distances himself from Moore, who he begins to describe as a lone wolf. He even makes peace with Cartwright by telling him that he will not likely call a second challenge convention. He only wants Bentley, and he wants to return Bentley, probably to kill him. So what is Varric's goal here? He does, but earlier in the novel you thought he was upset with the system of Minimax and his randomness, but at the same time he defends to the end the oath to fealty, and I think... In Dick's mind, these two aspects of this civilization are not really that easily detached. The kind of the feudalism, the loyalty, and the randomness. They're kind of joined together. So how can you get rid of one and keep the other? Either the whole system is corrupt or it's not, right? Um, or the whole system needs to be overturned or it's not. We learn that Varric is essentially an opportunist who's using his power and wants to hold on to power. His talk about undoing Minimax and a society based on marriage and all this stuff is is proven to be a dubious uh, veracity. Now, are these two concepts connected? I mean, randomness and the feudalism. In either system, you have no independent upward mobility, of course. And in both systems, like even feudalism, if you're born an aristocrat or a serf, is, is, is luck. It's genetic luck. He never comes out and talks about genetic luck here, but it's under the surface, I think. And that's why the randomness system so easily floated into a feudal structure. So to resolve this problem, it's a legal problem, and, and Cartwright uh, doesn't just say, I'm quizmaster, I'll do what I want. They seek out a judge named Felix Waring to resolve the difficulty. And while they wait for the meeting and the judgment on the nature of the fealty oath between Varric and Bentley, Eleanor approaches him and tries to explain things. As we find out that she's, she's desperate for community, she's lost her telepathic power, she's lost her being part of the Teep Corps, 
um, and she wants to be part of something again. And she tries to have this relationship with Bentley. She tries to be part of this community with Varric. And eventually she stays loyal to Varric for that association. But she does tell him that Varric will kill him if he can get his hands on him. Again, so she recommends killing Varric. It's the only way to save his life. Now, as this conversation goes on, warring arrives and the mediation could begin. As with the last episode, not too much thematic happens in these chapters. There's mostly this plot resolution, um, but quite a lot does indeed happen. So, uh, chapter 16, the penultimate chapter of the book. During the deliberations with Waring and Varric and Bentley, Varric doesn't hide much. Cartwright explains uh, why he offered the positional oath to Bentley, and Waring kind of sums up the dilemma, which we already know quite well. A classified serf must agree. A protector can only destroy his classified serf on an involuntary basis if the serf has broken his oath. The serf forfeits his rights but remains his protector's property. The case here rests on one point. If the protector in question broke his side of the oath first, the serf in question was legally within his rights to drop his work and leave. But if the protector did not break his side of the oath prior to the serf's departure, then the serf is a felon and liable to the death penalty. End quote. So we see how brutal the law is and how unfair it is to employers. It's certainly not a, not a union town here in, in, in the earth of solar lottery. Now, Atip tells Bentley after Waring leaves that the judge will agree with him in the end. So Dick doesn't even have to really go through the scene where the judge resolves the issues. I think we get that, but he doesn't have to because it's all, you know, we just have this secondhand saying, well, you're, you're clear. I read his mind and he's going to let you go. Now, Bentley is still not fully satisfied with how things have, have turned out, though. And his concern is not just about the legal resolution. His concern is deeper. He said, I haven't really done anything. I thought it was the hills, but Wakeman is right. It isn't the hills. It's the whole society. The stench is everywhere. Getting away from the hill system doesn't help me or anyone else. I could simply hold my nose and pretend it isn't there, but that isn't enough. Something has to be done about it. The whole weak, bright thing has to be pulled down. It's rotten, corrupt. It's ready to fall on its face. But something has to go up in its place. Something has to be built. Tearing down isn't enough. I've got to help build up the new. It has to be different for other people. I'd like to do something that really alters things. I have to do something that alters things. End quote. And that's Bentley's motivation. Or he wants to have a broader liberation of society. And we're not going to get that liberation. We're not going to know what it is. You know, we, we, got, we can be confident that change is going to happen. But in this way, it's very much like the novel The Man Who Japed, where you have a change implied but never fully experienced. I think the world that Jones made, does this, he does that same thing. He, he sets up the foundation for change but doesn't actually show it, doesn't show us uh, what, what would be better. Maybe that's a, a limit of his imagination at the time or maybe it's, it's his purpose to leave the future unwritten. It's kind of like the frontier. So Rita thinks, meanwhile, Rita thinks that Varric is still dangerous and may kill Cartwright, uh, even if this means he will not be Quizmaster again. Because only the assassin can kill him. If, if Varric kills him, he'd be, lose his P-card, he'd be a, a, a felon. But his desire to kill someone in revenge is finally achieved when he murders Eleanor, which of course is legal under the system just described. She's unclassified, she has no rights. How, he does this after she begs him to bring her back on. She's so desperate for community, for association, for being with 
people, you know, having that family that she begs to have him have to bring her back, but he kills her. Bentley is able to save Rita, though, when given the opportunity. So we're given the ultimate betrayal of the system on the people that it's meant to protect and, and serve and be serviced by. This is a tra- one element of the tragedy of post-scarcity, which is something I want to develop over many, many episodes in this series. Human beings are simply not necessary in societies where automation have achieved most production. They're, they're expendable. And Eleanor, is, she's especially expendable when she lost her telepathic powers. Cartwright and Varric sit down and, and seem to make a deal. They exchange P cards so Cartwright can live and Varric can become Quizmaster again. Waring confirms that this is a legal deal, that people exchange P cards all the time, and they agree to it. And as soon as the P cards exchange, Cartwright pulls out a gun, shoots Varric. Dead. So, chapter 17, the final chapter of the book. Cartwright reveals that Bentley is now the new Quizmaster. But how can this be if the bottle makes a random choice after the death of the previous Quizmaster, who is now was briefly for a moment, a second, Varric? And Cartwright explains that the P card he gave him earlier, in a few, few chapters before, is actually the number that, that the bottle will choose for the next Quizmaster. Cartwright reveals how he tampered with the bottle machinery for years while repairing it. He was a bottle repairman, and he kind of tweaked the machine a little bit. So he basically set up what the future numbers would be. He bought up those numbers. That's why he always carried around this pile of P cards. Like Varric, he claims to want to undo the system of min-max and randomness instead, but he replaces it with a system in which he gets to determine who the next Quizmaster is. It's more of a... a purposeful uh, secession rather than random. Cartwright's method is more radical because he does it simply by hacking the very machinery that works off the uncertainty principle. Varric simply wanted to benefit from the system and move up on it, but Cartwright actually wanted to undo it. He's more selfless in it. He begins to connect his efforts to the Prestonites, and that's where his real heart is. We again get the importance of the frontier reminded of, and that's where the novel's going to end. The novel's going to end with the Prestonite plot. The characters talk about some of the changes the new Quizmaster will make in the system. And we also get a final report on what happened to Moore Peleg. Uh, that bot exploded on a ship that apparently was holding the body of, of Preston, destroying that ship and apparently destroying Preston. Here, Dick is just kind of cleaning up his, his mess. He, the novel's a little bit messy, and that's I think that's a common complaint about Dick's novels, or at least it can be made, that he throws a lot out there, and then at the end he has to quickly wrap up a lot of plot lines. And it's a bit rushed, I feel. Uh, in, but in the final pages, they really stand out. It's the resolution of the Prestonite plotline. And that he ends on the frontier, which is proper. It's where he should end. Our final scene in the novel are out on the frontier. Coquelin and Mary, who we met briefly in earlier chapters, are preparing for a new life on the flame disk. They find, bu- they find buildings that house an old man who reveals himself to be John Preston. They soon realize that the old man is really just a computer program and not the real Preston. So he's kind of closer to Pelic than a real man. The real Preston did die years before, but he left these beacons to guide people towards the flame disks. So we don't have a patriarch to tell the Prestonites what life to live. It's up to them. This is what he tells them, though. The image. It's, I guess it's more like an image. The image of the old man says to, the, to this about the frontier drive. Mary suggests that maybe it's kind of a wanderlust that brings them out there. 
And he says, it isn't senseless drivel. The withered image of the old man was saying, its blind eyes gazed out over the group of people, not seeing them, not hearing them, not aware of their presence. It was speaking instead to listeners far off, watchers far away. It isn't a brute instinct that keeps us restless and dissatisfied. I'll tell you what it is. It's the highest goal of man, to need to grow and advance, to find new things, to expand, to reach out, reach areas, experiences, comprehend and live in an evolving fashion, to put aside routine and repetition, to break out of mindless monotony and thrust forward, to keep moving on. And the novel ends in ellipses. So it seems he has more to say. But he doesn't say you should build a democracy here. You should build a communist utopia here. He doesn't tell him that. He just says it's the drive of humanity to move to the frontiers. It's, it's our goal. It's, it's what we're here for. It's, um, it's a very optimistic image we're left with at the end of the novel. And at no point does Dick say what's better than this world he, he created here. He leaves it up to the reader to imagine and for the characters to perhaps envision. Um, a sequel of this novel would be very unfortunate because it would have to deal with what would come after this system. What would Bentley and the Prestonites and Cartwright and the others set up in replacement of the bottle? We don't get that. It's up to our imagination. It's up to us. So we perhaps have one of Philip K. Dick's core theses right here. Um, so store it away. Um, in the next episode, we, we finish the plot of the novel. Uh, in the next episode, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll sit back and I'll, I'll give you a little my overall thoughts on the book. It's a good book. I urge you to read it. If you haven't, if you've read other Philip Dick novels and you haven't read this one, I urge you to read it and maybe read it alongside works like The Man Who Japed uh, and Vulcan's Hammer because they're thematically quite similar, actually. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Uh, I'll be very briefly and in fact i think i'm going to put up all these episodes at the same time so um you can go ahead and, and listen to part six where i'll have some more to say about my my final thoughts on this novel thank you so much for listening and i'll see you next time luck let a gentleman see how nice a dame you can be Treated other guys you've been with Luck be a lady with me A lady